Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Catherine Byrne about everything from the current production of The Unmanageable Sisters to The Mundy Sisters, from The Abbey School to The Abbey Company, from sellout Broadway shows to swift and sudden closures. But you know what? I'm going to let Catherine tell the story because it's all in the way she tells it. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series, Catherine Byrne. Hi, thank you very much. You're currently appearing in The Unmanageable Sisters, a new version by Deirdre Kinahan of Tremblay's La Belle Serre. Now, Deirdre has transposed the action from Montreal to Ballymun. Were you aware of the original play before this? And and did you explore the text for this run? No, I did not know Tremblay and I didn't know the play. The first chance I got to see it was when they sent, we were doing auditions and they sent us the scripts. Now, when... I, I, I had there were copies of the of the Trumbly going around, but I knew from Graham from our first day that the a lot of the parts were different, and particularly Ruthie and Angie. Ruthie and Angie weren't Magdalene Laundry orphans, so they're really Deirdre's invention, and I felt although I think Rachel Dowling had had read some of the script and she was telling me about it, but I didn't really want to be affected by the script. I didn't want to say oh. I wish that was in this script or, oh, I wish the character was like that. Because they were, I think the other women are are, are closely drawn. Of course, you'd need to talk to Deirdre. But I do know that our characters are absolutely Deirdre's creation. So I thought it was really better not to look at the Trimley and just look at Deirdre's script and explore that. It's so compact, particularly my role, Ruthie stays on. Mine's very compact, but it's a beautiful little story. She's just got this really complete story. I mean, I come on at the end of Act One, and leave quite soon in Act Two. But there's a whole life. We see our whole life. And I didn't really want that to be influenced by anything else. So I, I, I didn't. I didn't read it. I just stayed true to Deirdre's and, version. And the title of the play, where does that come from? I think, I'm probably going to misquote this. It's De Valera. De Valera said that about women, I think. It was a, a particular, after some particular event, he said, there's, it's, there's a da-da-da-da-da-da unmanageable Sisters of Ireland. And of course, um, Deirdre's quite political. I'm not, I'm afraid. So she picked that out. And I think it's a terrific title for the play. Do you recognise the Ireland that they live in? You do. But do you recognise the women? I, I think I'd probably be lying if I said I recognise the women. I mean, this is set in Ballymun. And in a way... Not to sound too grandiose, but I, in fact, my life was very far. I lived in Clontarf. I, my father was away most of the time. My, I'm the youngest of four. They all went off and got married. And I was really at home with my mother all the time. I was incredibly protected by my mother. Now, she was great and talked about everything to me. I could ask her anything. But that whole Clontarf, I was just there, you know. I, I just knew Clontarf. I remember I got a job in Arnott's of Grafton Street. And she had to draw a map from the 44 April stops outside the Abbey. I didn't know where Grafton was. I was 17, so I was very sheltered. So I really can't say that I recognise that. But I mean, in 1974, though, I was, I don't know what age I was. I'm, I'm, I'm 63 now, but I was about 22. I was in here doing a play in The Peacock, uh, a Yates play called The Heron's Egg. So I was mixing here, you know, and we were having drinks in the plough and I was watching all these actors. And I just became completely fascinated. I used to pass here coming from, from Arnott's and look at the pictures outside. And in fact, 
because I was doing window and interior display, I saw the sets and the costumes. And I wrote in here originally to see if there was any way I could train as a set designer or a costume designer. And they rang, wrote back to me and said, um, we don't do train designers or, or costume people, but we do have an Abbey School of Acting. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? So I remember going home to my mother and saying, I think I'll do an audition for the And she said, why? You know, because my father was an actor. Why would you want to do that? You know, he's waiting for the phone to ring. Uh, and uh, so I, I had never auditioned for before. My mother helped me with these pieces. And I came in and auditioned. Had you been to the Abbey before that as a visitor no, or patron? You no. hadn't even set foot in the place? No. No, I, 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 at that point, had I even seen my father in a play? No. I did a school plays, but I never played a lead or anything. I remember we did uh, the, the Bluebird. And there were gorgeous parts on it. But I was an oak tree. In the background, I had one line, and I remember the teacher always kept saying, I can't hear you, would you speak up with the oak tree? Oh, I don't think I was even the oak tree, I think I was even more boring, you know, I've got a poplar tree or something. You know, these students with the tea towels all over your branches. I never got a part because, you see, I, I, I was so um, frightened of reading and audition and holding a script or reading anything. I stayed in the background all the time and just acted the Egypt, you know, it was just dreadful. And then I annoyed teachers. But then you take this step, uh, you know, hoping to get maybe in for set design or costume here and because I don't at know someone's that. suggestion here. I know. And then what, so what was your first impression coming in here into the Abbey School? So what happened was at the very first time I came, I was in the Peacock, the first auditions were in the Peacock. I went down into the Peacock, didn't even know the pe that door led to another theatre. And that year it was a strange year because I was joining a class. They'd already been here a year and they had six girls and seven boys. So they only wanted one girl. I didn't know that at the time. And there were lots of Americans after they had flown over to audition. It was really wild. And Patrick Mason, it was Patrick Mason's first day, he'd come over to do voice in the Abbey. So he was down at the auditions, that was his first day. Because he said to me, don't worry, this is my first day too. I remember he was so sweet. He's such a nice, he's such a gentleman, you know. Pather Lamb was the principal. You know, that's Geraldine Plunk's husband. Yes, Pather yeah. passed away. Yeah. And Eamon Morrissey was there. Don't ask me why Eamon Morrissey was there. And, and actually, I became great friends with Eamon. Eamon gave me terrific work later on. And we auditioned on the, on the Peacock stage. And I did totally unsuitable pieces. And I dried. I started again and dried. And when I came off the stage, I thought that's the end. And then Patrick brought, brought us all in to go over words and sentences and to hear how we speak and how we pronounce things and ask us to say things. And then at the end of it, he said to me, say the piece that you dried on stage. Just say it for me there. And I just said it for him. He said, see, you, you do know it. So it was a lovely thing. So when I left, I was called back for another audition. So the next audition was up in the rehearsal room. You had to get into the lift and come up and there were actors everywhere. And oh, there's the smell of the place. I couldn't believe it. So we auditioned the next time. We did um, improvisations in the in the uh, rehearsal room. I just remember thinking, I don't know what it was. You know, I mean, I was, I was only a kid, but I was, I was like, this is where I want to be, you know. And then I heard I was in the Abbey School and I started. And then it wasn't like, you know, theatre school now. We came in at six and we were here till nine, ten some nights. That's why when we used to come down, we'd slip in here and see the end of whatever play was on. I remember Philadelphia, Here I Come was on at the time. But uh, so that was my first experience. And of course, then immediately, all my friends in Clontarf, I never saw them. And I was, you know, I, I went to the plough that night for a glass of Guinness. It was like, oh, I've, just, I've arrived. And then the next night, I mean, that, that Saturday night, I didn't go out with my friends. I went to the Peacock because we got free tickets, you know. Then the next Saturday night, I went to the Abbey. And then somebody said, let's go to the project. I remember there was this Northern Ireland play going on the project. And there were wooden benches. And I remember thinking, 
oh God, this is not a theatre. But you know, it was just a different world. So for me to say, oh yes, I recognise that, 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 you know, the, the flats for this play, that would be wrong for me to say that. I don't recognise that. But I know the women, you know, you know the women, you know women like that. Well, speaking of women, your your well, your mother was was she an amateur actor? Yeah, my mother my work my mother worked in here actually. Did not yeah, know that. Yeah, she did radio work and everything. No, her family were um, her her family name is Thulier, and they had hairdressing salons in Dublin. They had about four of them in, in centre. All her brothers were hairdressers, and she was a hairdresser. And uh, but she was always amateur dramatics. But then she came in here and got a few little parts. But then she, my father was an actor, and she, he really became an actor because she was an actress. His sister and himself had a vegetable shop on Baggett Street, the corner of Baggett Street. He didn't become an actor till he was about 29 or 30. That was after meeting your mother? He went to see my mother in a play, in a tennis club. And uh, he said to somebody like, I mean, how, how do you join that group? And he joined the group because he kind of liked the look of her. And he wasn't an actor or anything. So your father, you know, went on to, to be in films and, and based in yes. London, Eddie Byrne. And got, got my, married my mother and decided that he didn't want her to work. Yeah, oh, how did your mum feel about that? Because did she feel that, no, you know, she, she left that behind? No, she never did, you know. The thing about this is, my sister and I always say this, my mother's life completely revolved around us and my father. Everything was made comfortable for him. Also, he was away a lot, so when he came back, everything had to be just right for Ed. You know, it was everything. We were all perfect and you know, we, we <laughs> sat up straight. Because actually... When your father's away an awful lot, you don't know him as well as you do if your father's in the house every night. I go to my friends and their fathers drove them to school and collected them from school and brought us swimming. My father never did any of those things. He didn't quite understand all that, even when he was home. And go and he following in his footsteps then, like, was that more of a hindrance? Because did that was that a shadow? Like, well, no, cast? it wasn't in a way. No, it wasn't. I, I can't really say it was. He. I, do you know what, if your, if your parents are in it, it can open a door. It can't get you a job. And also, I think more is expected of you. Because I went to the, I wrote to the gate, because when nothing happened here, I wasn't picked into the company. And then I wrote to Hilton Edwards and Michael McLeamore, up the cheek, up in the gate. And I said, you know, oh, Catherine Byrne and Eddie Byrne is my father. I did, I did say, my father said to me, that may not help you. <laughs> so very nicely Hilton had invited me to Harcourt Terrace and I was brought into the morning room and given a cup of tea and he said uh, he was they were doing Lady Windermere's fan and I always remember he's the other they were from another world and he said yes I want you to play Miss Farley in Lady Windermere's fan I got so excited and you will stage manage as well because then you see ASM's just running you were in ASM and you actors and you were ASM and dresser you could be doing sound. It's, it's a different world now. You know, everyone's got their job. Then it was you did everything you could. And then when I looked at the script, of course, she had no lines. It was an extra. But they always gave you a name in, this, in the programme. And uh, so that opened the door for me. But then I was an ASM there for about four and a half years. And I was a dresser. And then I went into sound. I was a sound operator for a year there, which I really loved. But I always wanted to be on the stage. How many years then did it take you to get from, say, the Abbey School working in the gate to become part of the Abbey Company. How yeah, a long years? time, a long time. I'll tell you, well, when, we, I was, I, when I was ASM in, in uh, The Taming the Shrew in the Gate, and Eamon Morrissey, I don't know whether you know the play, in the, in the beginning of the play, there's a kind of a theatrical piece that's sometimes cut out, that he's uh, there's somebody in the box watching the play being played. And Eamon played that part, a kind of comic role. 
and he had to walk up these stairs. And so I was given the job, like, make sure Eamon's up the stairs and make sure he's all right as he had glass of water and da, da, da. So I looked after him and he was always lovely to me. And we used to chat then at the interval. I'd say, oh, I want to be an actress and I want to be an actress. And then Eamon um, rang me and said, I've got this play called The Third Policeman. Again, there's no lines, but there's only one woman in it. And I'd love you to be in it. And it was just fantastic. I wasn't an ASM, I was just acting. It was a very small role, I had no lines. But that was the first time that I... I just was on the stage, you know, I was with all the actors and I was in a dressing room and it was fantastic. And from there, I t honestly, I think it took about six, seven, seven, eight years. Well, it was, I was in the Irish Theatre Company before that. I did a lot of work there and then I worked with Joe Dowling there. And then Joe came into the Abbey as artistic director and that's when I came into the Abbey and became a member of the Abbey. When I was, say, a member of the Abbey, I got a three-year contract and then I got a five-year contract and John was the same, he had the same contract. And uh, it was great, but you played as cast. You know, it wasn't a question of, I'll audition for something. Every month, a little list went up of the next play. And you used to, we all used to tear down and look at it and say, oh, I'm playing Mary in that. I'm play so, is it, you know, it was, it was a rep situation, which just, just doesn't exist anymore. So you couldn't flit between theatres then? You were kind of bound Oh, no, no, you were just here. Just no, you were just here. But it was brilliant. You were all the time. You were rehearsing and playing. You were in the Peacock. You were in the Abbey. Uh, you were in every play. Oh, sometimes you could be playing the lead. Sometimes you're playing a small part. I mean, that's the best training in the world. It's great. You know, and plays came back and things were a success. Things were lousy. You got great reviews. You got lovely reviews. But it doesn't matter because you were going to go into the next play anyway. So a lot to be said for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, would, would I go back to the sisters? Now, there's a Christian veneer in all of these characters, uh, but no practical application uh, of those values. What does that say about women's attitude towards each other? This is not an ideal play. I mean, it, 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 looking at this play, it doesn't say anything nice about women, really. I mean, they're ghastly. They're even ghastly as the poor old woman in the wheelchair. I mean, <laughs> there's no question. There are very few. A Patsy's a lovely woman, and they're really nasty to her. And Angie's lovely, and Ruthie's lovely. I don't know what it says about women. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult question. I asked that question the very first day. I thought, you know, we're doing this play with all these women on the Abbey stage, and what kind of women are they? But I think what the play is saying that if you're in a shit, you know, place and you've no money and you just, I mean, I suppose what the play the, of the most important speech is is, is uh, Rose's speech, where she's saying like, I've got nothing. I didn't know anything. Nobody knew me. I, I nobody. I was ignorant. Uh, I fell into this kind of world and I made these decisions and, and you see the other oh, the younger child is going to fall into that position if she's not careful she's pregnant so she can't marry that boy because he's married well could she marry joe well that's that's what the play's saying we, we, you can't get trapped we mustn't get trapped that must never happen again not that it doesn't happen again that's still happening I mean, it'd be a fantasy to think that we are just simply looking at 1974 and this happens. I mean, all the time. Well, there's women's, women's shelters all over Ireland and they're packed every night with people trying to escape these ghastly situations. So to say that we're looking back in 1974 and this is a period piece. In fact, so many things haven't changed and that's frightening. So uh, as much as the characters on stage spend an awful lot of the time tearing each other down, from what I've witnessed up on the top corridor, it couldn't be further from the truth from the <laughs> ensemble cast. Mm. Um, there's, there's a huge, I suppose, range of experience up in that rehearsal room uh, dur during the rehearsal period. Um, 
do you learn uh, in that rehearsal room? And also, how do you negotiate that sharing of experience? Do you have to be sensitive about that? I mean, you've been... You do. Well, you just, well, well, what I try to do is, I mean, certainly this time I had to do it. It was to approach it with a totally open mind. I mean, I didn't know Graham. I have to say, I, I didn't think I'd ever work in the Abbey again, and I was absolutely thrilled, you know. Why well, were you well, away for so long? I, I, I simply wasn't asked. You know, Fia and Ben didn't ask me to do plays. I mean, I'd worked with Ben a lot of time under other artistic directors. That's a simple fact. I don't want to sound like, well, I didn't get... You know, that's the fact. I wasn't asked to do work. I don't know why. You, you don't know why. I mean, I, I suppose because of the five years in Fair City that I was working those five years. But uh, no, I didn't. I really didn't. I, I think I think going into a television in someone's living room uh, four nights a week, you become that character to them. I mean, I know that in the street. I mean, just yesterday, everywhere you go. I mean, I thought I looked so different. Uh, I went to three about my phone yesterday. And the guy said, oh, you're the doctor in Fair City. I'm three and a half years out of that. You're sticking people's minds. So I, I didn't know Graham, and I, so I auditioned for Graham, and I was absolutely thrilled to be invited in. And with this cast, I know a lot of the, the actresses in it. I've worked with an awful lot of uh, Marion and Karen. It's years since I worked with Karen. Karen was only a girl when I worked with her. But it was the whole way Graham worked. I'd never worked that way. And also the good humour and the camaraderie really does stem from him. He created a fantastic atmosphere. I mean, I've never known a director to put on blaring music and dance around the rehearsal room for an hour with this cast and we played games and there was a real freedom of ideas and there was a, a really light fun atmosphere so what he allowed everyone to do I suppose what he was trying to do was to get to know us as well see what he was dealing with but through him getting to know us we got to know him and we got to know each other better and I think what he encouraged was he, he, he always, he kept saying it during rehearsal, you know, be kind to each other, look after each other. And, you know, you think, oh, I don't need to be told that, but actually we do. It's like being told when you get up on the stage, the audience have never heard this. They're hearing it for the same time, for the first time. Now, you hear that, you know, when you're starting acting. You're never too late to be told that. You know, you're going out every night. People have paid in. They don't know what to expect, so you've got to go out there and give them everything. You, you can't be told that too many times, you know, no matter how, what age you are. Are you still learning on the yeah, job? Yeah, oh God, yeah. And it's still terrifying. Uh, and it's still fun. I mean, well, Rachel and I sit by every night and we were sitting on our little stools, you know, our little funny suits. <laughs> and we always go, isn't it great we're sitting here, you know, going on. Are you, do you have we... nerves in the wings? Do you... Yeah, well, I'm nervous. I'm I'm not, I was, you know, you're not that terrified thing goes away, but you are always nervous and it's quite good, it's, you know, it's good to be nervous. But it's, it's, it's key. I think the most important thing on stage is, once you've actually rehearsed and you know what you're doing, is concentration and energy. And you think that's really easy. Actually, it's very hard to be consistent if you're doing six or seven shows a week. I mean, I've done shows like Dancing at Lunas and Molly Sweeney. I've done an eight months run with eight shows a week. So to keep that consistency, it's about getting rest, making sure that you're rest, you know, and it's great fun going out and having crack, but I mean, the older you get, the less you can do that. But it's coming in alive, well rested, well fed, you know, really up for it. And then afterwards you go, oh, that's really good. It's a good, lovely feeling. There is definitely like a dynamic energy on stage amongst the women up there. I yeah. mean, you can just, I was in there for a few previews and I was up there on opening night as well. And you can feel the generation of that of that energy on stage. And it's really interesting to watch the actors in their 
soliloquies. Uh, and the detail of their story, I suppose, uh, can dictate how they perform that mm-hmm. um, how they harness that energy. And it's interesting, I find, watching you. Um, on one of the nights, it felt as if you were um, making the audience kind of come to you. There was just the stillness about you. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I tried it. I tried it a, f- a, f- a few ways, <clears throat> and then actually because of the flu do you remember all the people were ill so Graham took us all separately for our monologues one afternoon and it was really interesting just for you and he in the in the rehearsal room and I was doing it and he he kept saying to me you know you don't be don't be coming out to us don't be trying to give it to us or try do tricks I remember he said you know because I suppose over the years you learn tricks so you're trying to kind of charm them in some way and he said you know no Go back and just tell it. Just tell us the story, really honestly. Tell it to the to one person, then tell it to the other. And it's a bit frightening doing that because you think, oh God, this is never going to work. But uh, it felt really good, and he was really pleased. So I kept it that way, and so it it feels good on the it feels good because if what the, what comes just before that is when all the girls get around me, you know, and they're all dancing and they're all and the audience are roaring laughing, and I'm thinking, oh my God, am I ever going to? But by the time I get out there and I've had the little scene with Patsy, they're they're kind of interested to hear what the hell brought her there, Jeter, what's she about? So it's really interesting. And so that's well, that was Graham's direction, you know. I mean he he brought my he brought it back and it was great. Yeah, you can actually I, I well I don't know whether you would know this, but you do actually hear the audience listening. Yeah, that's great. Sure. That's great. That's great. Yes, because I mean, your instinct as an actor is to go, oh, come to me. Oh, I, uh, 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 you know, do all sorts of tricksy things. But I mean, that was his. That was his idea. So I took it on board. So I'm delighted it works. <laughs> now, from one set of sisters to another, you, you mentioned dancing at Lunacy. Mm. Can I ask you how that script came to you and what your first response to it was? Okay, I was in Aristocrats, Brian's other play, in the Gate, Joe Dowling's production. I was playing Claire, three other sisters, Barbara Brennan. Dear to Dolly, I said, a beautiful production. It was really lovely. So Brian came to see that because he was in Dublin casting Dancing at Lunacy with Patrick. I was very lucky they hadn't cast Chrissy, the youngest um, sister. He came to see it and he was very complimentary, but I thought that's lovely. And then the next day I, I got a phone call. Actually, from Fiac. He was uh, he was Noel's assistant then. And he said, uh, uh, Patrick wants you to be in Dancing at Lunacy. Come down and get the script. So I was in town, ran to get the script and read it. And you can read something very fast. And of course, like, you always want to read your own part. That's what actors do. <laughs> How long am I on stage? How important am I in this play? And I read it. And I thought, yeah, this that's lovely. That was my reaction was, that's lovely. They're lovely. And I didn't really know. And so I went home and uh, I remember Fiat ringing me and uh, so John hadn't, I said, John, you read it because he's really good at reading scripts. And I remember Fiat rang me and said, well, I said, well, I've read it. I, I, can I ring you tomorrow? And he, I remember, always remember he said to me, he said, Catherine, when the Abbey ring you and offer you a new play by Brian Friel, you say, yes, thank you very much. Oh, I said, oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> I said, OK, uh, oh, I'll ring you tomorrow. So John read and John said, oh, that's, that's really great. You love that, you know. But I just was... I was frightened by it in a way because everybody was talking about the new Brian Freer play. I never even thought for a minute second that I'd be in it. But it was, you know, you just can't possibly recognise that something is going to be a success. I, 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 I really believe that. Now, Noel Pearson always felt it was going to be like that. Noel was the artistic director then or he, had, he was kind of filling in for in between. 
and he always felt it was going to be a success. I didn't know, even, even I mean, I don't know whether Brian felt that or not, but I remember I think, Noel thinks this is going to be huge. I think he's crazy, you know. We opened here, and then the opening night was terrific, but then it just snowballed into this thing. And then we went to the National Theatre in, in England, and we did it in rep for four months. Then we went to London and did it in the West End for six months. I'd never been, I'd never worked outside. And then we went to New York. I mean, it was the most incredible two and a half years. And because Breach Brennan, Breachy knocked on it, myself and Jerry McSorley, we all stayed in it the whole two and a half years time. But all the other characters were replaced in one way, different way. So we rehearsed. Breach and I used to say, oh God, we're we rehearsing this again. I can't believe it. Never got bored of that play though. You really couldn't. You know, it's a really beautiful play. And I, I always think, I've seen lots of productions of it since. I still think it's the most beautiful production that we were in. <laughs> so you you would have known Brian Friel as the writer in the rehearsal room. Yes. He would have sat there. Am I right in thinking that he directed you in Molly Sweeney? He did. He so did. what was that dynamic like? Well, what, what I did, uh, we did Dancing at Lunasa and then he did an adaptation of A Month in the Country. That was with Karen and I were in that. Then, what after, I think with Molly Sweeney came after that. And he gave that to the gate. And uh, I, there were a lot of discussions about who was going to direct it and who was going to direct it and, and who was going to be in it. I didn't know. Michael has kind of very vague about whether I was going to be in it or not. Then I was asked to be in it and then Brian decided that he was going to direct it. Now, I think the fact that there were monologues helped because um, Mark Lambert and myself and T.P. McKenna were the first cast. And I was delighted. I mean, I thought it was a beautiful script. The monologues frightened me. The blindness frightened me. The difference between, I suppose, a director, if you were doing that with the director, he would have said, no, the blindness. They'd be cool. I remember saying to Brian, now, what about the blindness, Brian? Well, he said, you're the actress. I don't know you. What are you going to do about the blindness? So I had to research that. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with some beautiful, some beautiful blind people who were really generous to me and helped me. But he was all about the line, the words, his words. Here's how he wants them said. I'm very animated and talky. And he used to say, put your hands down, stop waving your hands around, just say my lines. So it was funny, but I I got on really well with Brian. I don't know how TP and Mark did. I felt, I, I don't know, maybe they'd have liked a little bit more direction, but I was really happy. And I felt very strongly that Brian Friel deserved to have his play done the way he wanted it done. Now, a lot of people would disagree with that because I did another play called Give Me Your Answer Do Here. And it wasn't a huge success. And I was in that and Brian directed it. Now, that was a trickier play for him because there were eight people on stage. And well, when I, does your experience kick in? I mean, at that and when, yes, when do you, you get to, yeah, what's the word, challenge? You see, I really, uh, of course, it's important if you have an experience. And yes, you need, you know, you need, he wants talented people. But in fact, he's got to orchestrate it. And, you know, he, I think he thought, oh, well, directors just, you know, all the actors just do it. But actually you don't. You do need a captain and the ship. Or it goes to shit, really. You know, because then everyone's doing their own thing. You can't have that. There's got to be, a, there's got to be a chance where they say no, or just bring that up, or bring this back, or don't, you don't move there, or this is what the, the focus. You need someone, if there's a scene and there's a, well, this play is a perfect example. I mean, 15 people on stage. So, if you didn't have Graham saying, now what is the focus here? Now we need everyone to look at Rhina at this point. Nobody move. Because if everyone just does what they do, all the focus has gone. So actually directors directors really important. But because Molly Sweeney was monologues, we were very lucky. And we did that in the gate and then we did it in Islington in London, in that little theatre in Islington. And then we didn't do it for a whole year. 
and then it went to New York. But uh, Jason Robarts and Alfred Molina took over the parts. Ginormous actors. And I didn't read the script for for a year and Brian came over and he directed it over there. And I decided to have a new go, a different, different look at it because I was working with two different actors of different dynamics, really experienced actors. And they may have been a bit frustrated with direction because Jason was old school, you know, old school stage actor. And I'd worked with wonderful directors that would just have a different approach. And I think he would have liked it. But I must say, it was great for me to, ha to have done it. Then I came in with these actors and to do it again. And I thought my performance was better and different in New York. And the New York, oh God, the New York audience responded so well to it. It was just really wonderful. Eight months we did it. I mean, you'd think you'd be tearing your hair out, but it wasn't, you know. Well, what's your confidence levels then going into, into shows, transferring shows like that and getting new casts? And you're up with Robards and Melina. Well, I, I was very glad I'd done it before. It was very nice. I, I, I was thought that would be kind of a handicap, but it wasn't. And they were great because of the, the, the accents. Fred would always say to me, how's my accent? And he's such a fantastic actor. His accent was perfect, of course. And then Jason had a kind of a slight American thing because it didn't matter because Rice could have been English, could have been American, could have been anything. They were so generous. I, I can't tell you. I mean, it was it was when I came home from, from Molly Sweeney. That we, for instance, we were in this small theatre, the Laura Pell's Theatre, and we were on Times Square. And uh, I mean, Jason's a huge star. And we, we packed every single day, every single performance. And it, reality really is that Jason, people came to see Jason Roberts on stage. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Fred, but I mean, we were just so lucky to be with him. But he insisted on a State of the Nations contract that the three of us got paid the same money. And that seems very ahead of its time. Everything was the same. He absolutely insisted on that. This um, is Jason Roberts yes, insisted. Unbelievable. I mean, a star on Broadway would say, I want that. I don't give a damn what they get. And uh, I remember the producer, uh, Manny Azenberg, great guy. I, he comes over and visits sometimes. He said that to us. You know, he said, I don't know any other actor that would do that. Come, you know, be invited into a show and do that. So that was the kind of man he was. And when you're doing monologues, we had, I had 12 monologues. They had 13 each. And you do listen. I mean, you listen to the other actor. But every night I'd come off, Jason say things like, you got a great response on that line. Or, so they were listening and you felt that they were sitting in their chairs and they were absolutely with you. It was an incredible experience. And when I came home, I did a play in here, which we probably won't better not talk about. And it, was, it wasn't a very happy time and it wasn't a happy production. And after it, I just felt, I think it was just a disappointment. I just thought, Egos, everyone's ego is so big, and I thought oh, they, they, they don't understand. You know, you can be really talented, and you don't have to be like that. So I, uh, that's when I started doing the sculpture. I went down to Manor Hamilton and did this. I just left for a year. I just thought I just don't want to do this. On, because you know, after that, yeah, bad experience. Yeah, I, I did one or two things. Will we named that is that wonderful Tennessee. No, uh, no, no. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Wonderful Tennessee. No, wonderful Tennessee came after Dancing at Lunasa. Okay. It was Wonderful Tennessee, ten, 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 it was Dancing at Lunas and Wonderful Tennessee, Molly Sweeney and Give Me Your Answer Do. That's for the three, four new plays I did at Brian's. Uh, oh, oh, no, you know, Wonderful Tennessee was, which was unfortunate. But everyone wanted Lunasa. You see, everybody wanted to, and he, he never writes the same play twice. And it was, it, was, it was the exact opposite to Lunasa. And that's what everybody wanted. And Patrick's production was
It was very stylish. And the set was a gigantically beautiful set by Joe Van Eck. But it just, it just didn't speak to the people. I just, and you know, they were so confident. It was already booked for New York. We went over to Broadway and we opened on a Sunday night and we got our notice on a Monday morning. Unbelievable. You know, the highs and lows. I had baby. Yeah, I mean, I had babysitters fixed up for here. You know, to relieve John for six months. I was home in two weeks. We did the preview. We we did we did two weeks. You know, we did the two weeks, and then we we came home. I mean, it, it was it was shocking. Really, really shocking. So it's not even after that play that you take a sabbatical. No, not no. at all. I know not charging. at all. I came home. Don't know what I did after that. I did a whole load of things, and uh, I do want to get back to the sabbat the the kind of the breaks away from acting. But then how do you deal with those? How do you deal with yourself when you're dealing with such highs and then you come back to earth? Well, it was very strange. I mean, all the excitement and all the build up. And I had also, that's an awfully long time ago. I was in, um, what was I? Yeah, I was in something here and I turned something down here to go to New York. Very nice job to go to New York. I mean, everything was just all geared towards this. I mean, we're home and I'm up signing on the dole. It was like, it was definitely after Molly Sweeney that I came home and I did the play here and I did a play somewhere else, maybe in the gate. And I just thought, no, I want to do something else. And I applied for this course down in Manor Hamilton and I went to live there. I mean, I lived there five days a week and it was like another world. Nobody knew anything about the theatre or anything about me. Everyone was starting. It was actually a false course. And it wasn't about the art work. It was all about technique. You know, we did three months stone, three months bronze and wax, three months clay, three months wood. It was brilliant. It was the best thing in the world for me. It really cleared my head and um, it was really, it was so physical. It was just people were exhausted and it was brilliant. And when I came home after that, I tried to work, you know, as a sculptor for a year. And then Frank McGuinness did an adaptation of Electra for Jane Brennan's company, Bespoke. And I played Clytemnestra in that, they asked me. And that was the first thing that I did back. I hadn't done anything for ages. And then I started getting a bit of work on the way back. And then I went, came out of the business again. It was just difficult. There were a couple of difficult years, you know, I thought. Was there, is it, was there a risk that you wouldn't return? Oh, yeah, there was. Yeah, there was. I mean, I went into IMAD thinking... Well, that's what I'll do. I'll do my own work on Emma, and then Emma closed, and then I thought, well, I'm not qualified for anything. I wasn't qualified to do another job. So then I got the bit in, the, in Fair City, and then when Fair City ended, I couldn't get a job in the theatre because, of course, you know, there was a whole influx of new people, and people kept saying, "But you're still in Fair City." So I was very, very lucky that Emma took me back, and I, well, I've joined a lovely studio, D15 Studios, up in um, Castle Knock, and I go there a couple of days a week, and I worked in Emma the odd day. And I loved it. And I started making sculpture a little bit faster. And I started selling a piece of work and getting pieces into exhibitions. And it was just great. And then Noelle Brown asked me to do a play with her last year in Beaulieu's and I did it. And it was really great fun. And Maisie, Maisie Lee directed it. And it was, it, was just, it was so exciting. And then there was kind of nothing after that. <laughs> and I did a little, a little film and I did a little television, foreign television thing. But there really wasn't all the work. So then when I got this one, yahoo. So... You know, I, I, I'm... I find it extraordinary. And I all the other actresses on stage that I'm working with work all the time. You'll notice they're in things all the time. I mean, I mean I'm not. So it's quite unusual for, for me to be in this. So it was great. I'm very excited about it. I just find it extraordinary that you... I understand that there has to be quiet periods. But I suppose I'm surprised 
that I nothing did, is happening in those yeah. times. I, I did have 20 years, though, of manic work. You know, I think you have your, your, you get a time in the business. You know, you become a little like flavour of the month and everybody wants you. And you could have years of that. I was, inc- I was really incredibly lucky. Honestly, I was. So, I mean, you have to have lean periods. So it's now maybe. <laughs> or maybe now. Maybe this is the beginning of something new. <laughs> the start of the next thing. Yes. Um, what do you get from acting? Um, well, there must be some awful lack in my personality that I needed. I think it there probably is, you know, an actress. I mean, there must be a terrible need for applause and attention. I don't know. Uh, do I need it as much as I did, I wonder, that attention? I really enjoy the rehearsal period. Uh, it's, it's lovely. and I love working with people and I love working in a script and figuring it all out. Um, do you enjoy performing? Oh, yeah, I do. I, yeah, I do. You do. I mean, this is lovely to perform. Some things are more enjoyable than others. It's It really depends on the situation. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I didn't know whether I would, you know. I kind of came into it thinking, 15 women, this could be carnage. You know, it could be a bitch fest. And I, I really didn't know because I've been in plays, you know, where there's much less women and there can be carnage. So it, I was, you know, I was wondering, thinking, oh, I wonder what this will be like. And because I'm older, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll survive it whatever way it is. It's interesting that you mentioned Jason Robards, you know, talking to you when you came off stage and I suppose uh, encouraging you. Yes. I, I've seen you do that myself upstairs um, <laughs> after maybe it was the dress or something. And you were just so quick off the mark to point out to a couple of other actors that you were watching from the wings and that you, oh, yeah, you saw that and yes. you thought that was beautiful. And I just thought, and that's where I saw that kind of infrastructure of support that you all had for yeah. each other, which yeah. is evident. Oh yeah, it is, it is, it is, it is really in this. And that's, that's well, it, it's not that it's completely unusual, but it's quite unusual for a big, big cast. This is very, very happy cast. And we have this WhatsApp and we're talking to each other all the time and we're all going out on Friday night and everyone's, you know, it's, I could go out and have a drink with any of the cast. And it is unusual. I mean, in fairness to Graham, he's really got a lovely bunch together. And we, it's, <laughs> it is a lot down to him. He's great fun and he's going around and he, he's um, you know, making connections all the time and going around the dressing rooms and saying, hiya, and how's it going? And he's slipping in and out to see pieces of it. And after the show, I think um, Con reports to him how's it, and he always goes onto the WhatsApp. And they're important little things. You know, they, they don't seem, they seem trivial, but they're actually not. Because you feel you're not, it's not just forgotten and we're just been left to get on with it. And uh, everyone, you know, in the box office when you go down, they tell you that's really good. And and everyone's cutting stamps so they can fall out of the sky for us. I mean, I've never seen that before. I mean, that's you, you, Your experience of the Abbey, like you've been here for over 40 years. Yeah, but years. I mean, it's a totally different atmosphere. You'd never talk to somebody in the offices. No, you wouldn't really. And I, I mean, nobody cared. And, you know, the, up, upstairs and getting a cup of tea, I would, I could say to people, like, who's that? Who's that? What do they do? What do they do? What do they do? Normally, you wouldn't do that. You'd just say hello. You wouldn't ask what they were. Now I'm interested in what everybody's doing and what everyone's job is and what what they do. It's a different. It's a much more relaxed atmosphere. It's a nicer atmosphere. I I, I can't put it any other way. It's a really nice building to be in, and uh, and that's up to the people who run it. I mean, he he's brought a lot. I mean, Graham and Neil have brought a lovely atmosphere into the building, and. Uh, I can only just say that's that's great. It's a positive. 
Well, then say, as a final question, you have been coming into this building for decades and decades. Mm. How do you feel about the place? I love it. I mean, I love it. I, I must say. <laughs> First morning of rehearsal, I walked in, I thought, I got into the lift. I went, oh my God, if this lift could talk. <laughs> you know, and I got out. It's, it, it's the most aggressive it's, it's been lift as well. I know, it's a really horrible, isn't it? But you know, it, it got a little, it's got, had a little facelift and everything. But actually, everything's the same. That rehearsal room is still the same. And it's a... It's a stuffy L building, you know, I mean, it's a great L building, but it's, it's kind of a stuffy building, but it's a... And the rehearsal rooms are the same. I'm in four. They were always the men's dressing rooms. I was always in three. That was always the dressing room that I changed in. And um, I shared with everybody, like Anita, and all over the years, all different people. So it's strange. And every time I come up off the stage, I go into two and three. And Tina always says, no, you're not in here. Oh, I said, oh, I've got to go off to the next with the men's dressing rooms. That was always the men. And they even have a little men man smell about them. <laughs> we were teasing Graham about that. But it's, um, you know, it's, of course, of course I have a soft spot for it. And that's why I'm so pleased to be back. And when I'm backstage, and I really do feel it. I mean, I feel every night when I'm sitting waiting to go on, I always think, it's really lovely to be here. I didn't actually think I would be here. I mean, I... I was kind of quite emotional on the opening, thinking, God, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> and it sounds, sounds pathetic, but it's really lovely. And I mean, and I'm very grateful. Oh, I hope it's not the last time. <laughs> Catherine Byrne, it has been delightful to talk to you. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much.